Part 2. Easy to Want. Chapter 6. Empathy. In a classic episode of The Simpsons, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, we meet Herb Powell, voiced by Danny DeVito, who bears a striking resemblance to Homer Simpson. Herb grew up in an orphanage, but the experience has molded him into a world-beating success, the founder of his own car company, Powell Motors. Still, that success feels hollow. I have no roots. All I know is that I'm just a lonely guy, Herb admits glumly to his top executives. Then he gets a call from Homer, who's just found out that they're long-lost half-brothers and that Herb was born of a tryst between their father, Abe, and a carnival prostitute. Jump cut, and we see Homer driving with his family to meet Herb for the first time, and then screeching to a halt in front of his mansion. Holy moly, the bastard's rich, Homer shouts. Later during a factory tour, Herb tells Homer to pick out a car. Homer promptly asks for the biggest one they've got, but a smarmy executive replies that they don't have any big ones because Americans don't want big cars. Herb loses it. This is why we're getting killed in the marketplace. Instead of listening to what people want, you're telling them. Herb quickly decides that Homer, not his egghead Ivy Leaguers, will design the next Powell car. Homer soon becomes the raging tyrant of the product department, demanding dozens of features to suit every annoyance in his life. When the car is finished, Herb calls a press conference to reveal the new car for the everyman. He hasn't seen it in advance, preferring to be surprised along with the public. Then the dust cover comes off. The crowd gasps at the monstrosity before them. There are tail fins and enormous cup holders to fit the largest soda from Quickie Mart. Instead of a back seat, there's a glass containment bubble for the kids with built-in restraints and optional muzzle. The car has three horns because... You can never find one when you're mad. The hood ornament depicts a bowler in mid-roll. It costs $82,000. What have I done? Herb wails, sinking to his knees. I'm ruined. Homer, still behind the wheel and wearing a forced smile, honks the horn, which plays La Cucaracha. Like so many Simpsons episodes, the story echoes real events. In particular... Ford's disastrous invention of the Edsel. There, the suave executives who had succeeded Henry Ford touted that they had done the world's most advanced consumer research and had provided every feature anyone could want in the car of the future. The dealers were threatened with fines if they took the dust covers off the car before E-Day, September 4th, 1957. And yet when the day arrived, people looked at the car and yawned. No one cared about innovations such as a push-button gear shifter in the center of the steering wheel, or a speedometer that changed color when the speed changed. The Edsel's failure spoke to a gap in the industry. Polling had seemed to show that young, up-and-coming American males wanted a sporty sedan built for their generation. But polling wasn't the same as figuring out what people actually wanted, and so the Edsel's designers made the leap from what they knew to be true in general to the specifics of what they would create. Designers such as Henry Dreyfus, who in the 1950s was still ascending the heights of his influence, should have been the ones to step in, figuring out where the meetup was between business and user. But even they didn't have any firm process for doing so, beyond their own intuitions. The question remained, how could you understand what you were supposed to invent, for whom, and why, if you didn't have some genius with an unmistakable vision for what the world needed? Empathy, which had always been the vague and quirky heart of the design process, hadn't yet been codified for industry in a process that anyone might understand, copy, and reapply. Design thinking, user-centered design, and user experience are all forms of industrialized empathy. These processes push for would-be inventors to immerse themselves in the lives of others, and they lie behind the products all around you. From Gmail's various permutations and new features in the last 10 years, to the two-second rewind button on the DVR, 
invented when design researchers for TiVo saw people watching TV ask, what did they just say? They lie behind clever things we rarely think twice about, such as your child's fat, squishy-handled toothbrush, which began with the designer's observation that kids don't hold their toothbrushes with their fingers like their parents. Industrialized empathy hinges on the idea that would-be innovators, such as the well-meaning but wrong-headed inventors of the Edsel, or even Homer, with his God-given sense that everyone was just like him, are held back by their own point of view and need to slip loose of it. This shift in paradigm didn't arrive fully formed. It was a direct outcome of the Red Scare of the 1950s, the counterculture of the 1960s, and the fear that nothing holds us back quite as much as ourselves. Eventually, these influences helped spawn the design firm IDEO and its competitors such as Frog and Smart Design, which invented a new way of understanding users. It is a story of a little-known period of engineering and design history, just as consequential as any other. But that has gone untold because it didn't produce a technical breakthrough. It produced an emotional one. In 1952, Bob McKim had just graduated from Stanford with a degree in mechanical engineering at the height of the Korean War. A lifelong pacifist, he managed to avoid the battlefield by taking a job at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. He was tasked with designing the crates for securing nuclear bombs, and it sickened him. So after registering as a conscientious objector, he got a job designing lab equipment for top-secret experiments in hydrogen fusion. When his enlistment finally ended, McKim went to New York to study industrial design at the Pratt Institute and then landed a job at one of America's top industrial design firms. Lowy was outrageously stylized. He was just looking for appearance. Teague I liked a lot, but the most classy and intellectual was Dreyfus. McKim, now 90 years old, told me, as we drank tea in his backyard art studio in Santa Cruz, where he has spent his retirement crafting bronze nudes. He'd also taken up the tuba. You have to keep your lung power up to play it, he explained. Dreyfus was at his peak by then, and had a swanky office above the Paris Theater, kitty corner to his apartment at the Plaza Hotel, and overlooking the famed Pulitzer Fountain, topped with a bronze sculpture of Pomona, the Roman goddess of abundance. McKim was lured by an ideal that Dreyfus had been selling ever since he'd turned down the job creating prettier facades for Macy's housewares. Dreyfus had preached that for designers to actually create something valuable, they had to be steeped in its manufacturing. McKim had always hoped that even the outside of a consumer gadget might express its inner workings, so that the gadget's design could tell its own story. But soon after McKim started his job with Dreyfus, his boss's philosophy began to feel like a veneer. Even though Dreyfus talked differently from his peers, he still worked like them. The designers weren't close to the manufacturing process at all. They weren't even allowed to make their own prototypes because their billing rates were too high. Instead, they had to send their drawings to the model maker. It seemed to McKim that Dreyfus, just like everyone else, had been relegated to creating nice cases for what someone else had invented. So McKim quit after a year and moved west with his young wife, doing odd jobs to make ends meet and toying with the idea of taking more classes at Stanford. During a visit, he saw a flyer for a class in Unlocking Creativity run by John Arnold, who'd also just arrived at Stanford a few months before. McKim went to meet him, hoping to learn more. Instead, Arnold asked McKim if he'd like to teach. They met at exactly the right time for each other. While McKim was growing disillusioned at the Dreyfus studio, Arnold had been searching for a way to teach students to be not merely smart, but ingenious. His quest started in the spring of 1951, when he got up in front of his engineering students at MIT and asked them to imagine life for a race of aliens on another planet. You're living in the year 2951, Space travel is well-established, and there is a good deal of trade in the galaxy, he told the students. Arnold explained that the Terran Trade Agency, scouring the galaxy for commerce partners, had found the Methanians, 
33 light years away, on a planet called Arcturus IV. The goal was to make something these Methanians wanted to buy. Arnold had crafted the limitations of the Methanians to force the students to imagine a life other than their own, and what that might entail. Do you think the average present-day Terran designer gives as much thought to human limitations? Arnold asked. Arcturus IV was an unplowed field of consumer desire, primed for inventions. Its inhabitants were friendly and naive, but stuck with 19th century technology. Their planet itself was an enormous hunk of the most valuable resources anyone could imagine during the nuclear age, uranium and platinum. But their needs were hyperbolically foreign. The Methanians were humanoid, but gangly and bird-like with egg-shaped bodies. They were physically weak and extraordinarily slow. As the weeks went on, the students got into debates about whether the Methanians, who hatched from eggs, would find an egg-shaped car to be vulgar. Whether the Methanians, with their slow reflexes, should be asked to adapt to the speed of new technologies. The students invented ingenious things. A drill that required two hands to turn on, so that slow-moving Methanians couldn't hurt themselves. And a car seat that worked using suction, so that drivers wouldn't have to use their flimsy limbs to brace during cornering. Even so, Arnold's starchy fellow professors saw that class as a diversion from the real work of an MIT degree. Of course, Arnold saw it differently. Tall, plain, and balding, Arnold, with his forgettable looks, belied a radical sensibility. McKim remembers almost having to jog to keep up with his strides, even while Arnold chain-smoked lucky strikes. Students in his seminars used to say that even when they were all sitting at a round table, the table itself seemed to slope toward him, leaving everyone else looking up. Through his teaching, Arnold was trying to inoculate the next generation against conformity. That threat was neatly articulated by William White in a series of articles for Fortune that portrayed a creeping threat to American individualism posed by Groupthink and the Organization Man, who left for work at some big gray company every morning wearing his spotless gray suit with no higher value than to simply go along with all the other gray suits. Amid the growing fear that the United States and Russia would descend into nuclear war, White was limbing a deeper fear about communism, that the threat wasn't abroad so much as it was within. Arnold was one of the many intellectuals taken by White's thinking. As he wrote in his manifesto, Creative Product Design, prediction typifies the daring spirit that is not afraid to fight for what he believes to be right, to stick his neck out and take a chance, to be different when it makes a difference. But the only way to teach people to predict what the world might need was to explode their assumptions. As William Clancy sums up in his recently published introduction to John Arnold's creative engineering, our cultural milieu, our peers and norms, instilled in how we act, look, talk, and relate to our environment, contribute to our blindness and limit how we generate new ideas. Arnold was searching for new tools to free the mind. His ideas gained almost immediate attention. The Arcturus IV course landed Arnold on the cover of life, next to a prop he used in class, the three-fingered hand of a Methanian. But Arnold's worst fears about conformity eventually hit home. The faculty brass at MIT groused that the publicity was unbecoming. Arnold, fed up with their whispering, fled to Stanford's engineering program in 1957. The department differed in the aspirations it was trying to breed in its own students. Silicon Valley didn't exist yet, but the dean of the engineering school was planting the seeds by encouraging its graduates to start their own businesses in the nascent semiconductor industry. The spirit of enterprise was in turn nourished by a burgeoning counterculture, and those influences nourished Arnold's own radicalism. And yet, soon after creating some of Stanford's first courses in product design, such as philosophy of design and how to ask a question, John Arnold died of a heart attack while vacationing in Italy. McKim, as one of the first professors Arnold had recruited, was then thrust into the role of leading a growing product design curriculum. 
McKim went looking for new methods of unlocking creativity. He took mescaline in the same experiments that came to include pioneers of modern computing, such as Doug Engelbart. He found himself at Esalen, perhaps most famous today as the site of Donald Draper's closing epiphany in Mad Men. Esalen had recently been founded by two Stanford graduates on a stunning coastal plot in Big Sur that one of them had inherited. Before the graduates arrived, the property's hot springs had been a gay party spot on weekends. The gun-toting night watchman was Hunter S. Thompson. Its new mission echoed the spirit of John Arnold's obsession with innovation. We were looking for what happened if you took away conformity, which is the result of fear, McKim told me. What would the human potential look like if you took that away? If you took away fear, would creativity blossom? McKim might have sympathized with the students at Stanford who were picketing by day and, by night, breaking into the engineering department to destroy anything they thought might abet the Vietnam War. But, like Arnold, he still believed the enemy lay inside rather than out. Fresh from Esalen, he convinced colleagues to try out a new way of doing things, starting with therapy circles, where someone would sit at the center of a dozen or more people he knew, while each of them took turns voicing how they really felt about that person in the middle. Sometimes, this could be outright terrifying, as when a student dragged his girlfriend across the floor. It made you wonder what lay behind people, hidden. Throughout the 1960s, McKim started to dwell on what separated the best students, what made some projects sing while others floundered. And as he started to play back the decade he'd spent teaching, he began to realize that the best students didn't demonstrate creativity in solving a problem, so much as in finding the problem. One of the star students in McKim's need-finding program was David Kelly, who recalled coming up with an idea for in-home tests for venereal disease. No shame, better health. And then showing up at a hospital to ask the doctors and nurses what they thought about the idea. They just laughed noting how many problems such a product would cause because of misdiagnosis. Lesson learned. The solutions you imagine might not match the scale of the problem. Yet one of the doctors did offer a tour of the basement, where there were files stacked from floor to ceiling in every direction. If you want to solve a real problem, come here. If we misfile a patient's record, the doctor said, we never find it again. I realized that it was a creative act, talking to people, Kelly says. I had to actually feel the need of a person. Ask Kelly what the key to his later success was, and he credits McKim and his insistence that finding an interesting problem is even more important than finding an interesting solution. Kelly went on to propose an ingenious filing system, and after that, to become one of the most influential designers of the 20th century. But not because of the number of things he designed, although he did play a key role in designing Apple's first mouse. Rather, his influence sprang from the design firm he founded right after graduating in 1978, which evolved into IDEO in 1991. More than any other company, it was IDEO that spread industrial empathy to boardrooms across the world. It's working. In 2018, the consulting firm McKinsey & Company analyzed more than 100,000 executive-level design decisions across 300 publicly held companies. Those with robust design thinking processes had 32% higher revenues than their peers over a five-year period and 56% higher shareholder returns. Jean Lidka, a professor at the University of Virginia, who spent seven years studying 50 projects in depth, found something similar in 2018, but was able to better understand why. Her conclusions bear a striking echo of John Arnold's hopes. By now, most executives have at least heard about design thinking's tools, ethnographic research, an emphasis on reframing problems and experimentation, the use of diverse teams, and so on, if not tried them. But what people may not understand is the subtler way that design thinking gets around the human biases. For example, rootedness in the status quo, or attachments to specific behavioral norms. That's how we do things here. 
that time and again block the exercise of imagination. Today, you can find design thinking and industrial empathy at work in organizations ranging from IBM, which vowed to become the world's single largest employer of designers, to the Finnish government, which used design methods in its programs to reinvent everything from daycare to welfare. As John Arnold had articulated in his class about Arcturus IV, personal experience can blind. So Arnold sought new ways to free the mind of limitation, of personal bias. Bob McKim, in turn, believed that freeing the mind lay in looking out at the world as it was, of feeling the needs of others. Those ideas spread only after the invention of a process that could recast those New Age ideals for the rhythms of industry, retuning them for the insecurities of modern corporations fearful of being out-innovated. This was IDEO's accomplishment, and David Kelly was its best, most passionate salesman. Yet the soul of what the company was trying to become was Jane Fulton Suri, whose role has been overlooked even inside the design profession because what she offered wasn't design itself, but rather the spirit that should guide it. One of Fulton Suri's first jobs out of college was working for Britain's Office of Public Safety where one of her first tasks was to figure out why so many subjects of the crown were cutting their hands and feet off with lawnmowers. At the time, the government kept voluminous accident records, but when Fulton Suri poured over them on a boxy mini-computer screen in blinking green type, they wouldn't speak. Ran over foot with lawnmower. Whatever had actually happened was lost in the gaps. This kind of usability research, if it had been done at all, was typically conducted in a lab, asking users to go through the motions of starting a lawnmower and pushing it. To figure out what had actually happened, Fulton Suri realized she'd have to start by talking to all these people. So she went to them. It wasn't exactly in the wild, she says, but it was in the wilder. In some ways, she had always been preparing for this work. As a child, she had a tiger mask, and she remembers thinking about the difference between how that mask looked on the outside and how it felt on the inside. A formative lesson for what she'd do as a design researcher later in life. And she remembers when she and her siblings would visit the tawny beaches of Cornwall and try to convince the local farmers to let them camp on their land. She was a shy child but she noticed that if she could just get the farmers talking about something they cared about, their prize cows or their bulky tractors, they would practically offer up the campsite themselves without being asked. Fulton Suri realized that people would readily reveal something hidden about themselves if you asked, but doing so took a special kind of courage. Now an adult, petite, proper, and shy, she would knock on people's doors explain that she was with the government safety office, and gently ask them to rehash one of the worst moments of their lives. The people she interviewed would describe leaning down to clear a stuck blade while reaching with their other hands to balance on the mower and then accidentally grabbing the lever that engaged the blade. Or they would show her their lawnmowers, which were designed with a single pole as a handle, like a vacuum cleaner. And because these lawnmowers looked like vacuum cleaners, people naturally used them like vacuum cleaners, pushing them back and forth, back and forth across the grass, rather than walking around the yard in straight lines. While toing and froing with the machine, they'd accidentally snarl their toes. In those stories, Fulton Suri found a universe of misinformation in the way things were designed. The point was that these products were all speaking the language, but no one recognized it. Like when a man using a chainsaw had grabbed what he assumes to be its handle, only to realize afterward, when he'd nearly cut his hand off, that what looked like a handle was never meant to be held at all. It was the hand guard. To be sure, Fulton Suri wasn't discovering a new idea about design. Henry Dreyfus and William Dorwin Teague has spent their entire careers trying to teach their clients about the semiotics of how their products should look, the subtle references, patterns, and details that made a kitchen appliance look like it was for the kitchen, 
or that made a new vacuum cleaner just a little bit easier to use than its competitors. And Paul Fitz had seen all those airplane accidents caused by baffling controls, their lessons hidden behind the blanket proclamation of user error. But Fulton Suri was seeing a premonition of the era when computers would start creeping into our everyday lives. She was seeing what could happen when specialized products for a professional audience, lawnmowers, and then, later, computers, arrived in a consumer market. You might expect professionals to be technically savvy, well-trained, knowledgeable about the tools they used and how they worked. Fulton Suri was seeing that average people, in the confident domain of their own homes, didn't resemble professionals at all. They didn't follow instructions. They let their minds wander during the task at hand. They made assumptions about how their tools should behave. It was when Fulton Suri began translating all her findings about lawnmowers and chainsaws and hedge trimmers into governmental standards that she realized it would take years for any of that work to make its way into the real world. And all the while, scores more sunburned citizens would be cutting their hands off. Better to be in the room when those products were being designed so that you could tell the engineers not to color a chainsaw in the same garish colors as a children's toy because it wasn't meant to invite children to use it. She tried to join their ranks, yet none of the design firms she solicited were interested in hiring her. You didn't see people like me on the design team, she says, and I'm sure I wasn't impressive because I didn't have immediately good ideas or answers to whatever the designers were struggling with at the time. This could have been different. After all, Dreyfus used to crow about what he'd do to understand his users, such as when he studied that RKO theater in Sioux City, Iowa, where he intuited that farmers weren't coming in for fear of messing up the plush red carpet. Teague, not to be outdone, once boasted of sending his designers on a cross-country drive in a shipping truck to better understand how the cab should be designed. And yet neither of them made their attitudes into anything approaching a systematic process, because they were both assuming that design was an act of personal inspiration. Even though Dreyfus had codified the measure of mankind in the drawings of Joe and Josephine, neither designer thought to codify the quality of mind that gave rise to their inventions. They saw the act of imagining oneself into another person's problem as ingenuity, not empathy. In the decades before Arnold's experiments in design education, it was hard to imagine how ingenuity might be taught. By the 1970s, there were dozens of firms dreaming of just a fraction of the success of Teague and Dreyfus, who were more than happy to dispense with high-minded ideology altogether. Thus, as the profession grew in the next 20 years, the lowest common denominator prevailed. By the 1980s, there were thousands more designers working for less and less money, with less and less investment in what design meant. I remember there was a firm, when I got out of college, that would start a design in the morning and finish it by the evening, recalls Dan Formosa, who would go on to co-found the storied firm Smart Design, in and out, with just a bit of styling on the outside. Often, even designers at the profession's apex were merely asked to put a pretty casing on a finished product, just as Bob McKim had seen in his short stint at Dreyfus's office. So while tidy tales of ingenuity brought the business in, it was styling that kept the lights on. But Formosa and others were also beginning to sense an opening. From the beginnings of the design profession in the 1920s, there were always two competing strands of thought. On one hand, the ideal of making people's lives better by solving their problems. On the other, the drive to simply stoke consumer lust and keep the furnace of capitalism well-fed. On one hand, a belief in commerce as progress. On the other, the hope that simple consumer churn might stoke consumer demand. By the 1980s, the pendulum had swung toward the latter. It was about to swing back, thanks to a new generation and a new opportunity, the explosion of the semiconductor, which would unleash a wave of new gadgetry 
the size of which had not been seen since the 1950s. That's the simple reason why a disproportionate share of the world's most influential design firms, such as IDEO, Smart, and Frog, made their names with projects in Silicon Valley. It was there that prevailing New Age ideals about self-discovery merged with the newfangled, human-centered design process. Together, the process and its products rode a silicon wave into the world. They ushered in a new sensibility for design, in which the surfaces of things didn't matter as much as the experience of them. Disillusioned by the stony indifference she'd encountered while trying to find a job in Britain, Fulton Suri made her way to Berkeley, where her boyfriend was studying for his Ph.D. Through a mutual acquaintance, she came to meet Bill Moggridge, the owner of a small design studio. Moggridge was a fellow British emigrant, tall and urbane, a polymath who started his career designing hospital equipment, but also spent a lifetime studying typography. He could already lay claim to making history, having recently finished designing the world's first laptop computer, the Grid Compass, which would become standard equipment on the space shuttle for nearly 20 years. In a quiet voice, Moggridge would tell people what a letdown the Grid Compass had been. As the project began, Moggridge didn't know if such a thing was even possible, if a computer really could be portable enough to be desirable. To test whether it was, he gathered up all the raw parts required in a computer, a hard drive, a floppy drive, a processor, and a display, and put them in a briefcase, which he would carry around all day. It was heavy but workable. The problem wasn't just making it lighter, but making it small, when the display consumed so much space. Perhaps inspired by the briefcase itself, Moggridge hit upon the now-universal clamshell design, where the display could be closed for carrying, then unfolded for use. The genius lay in how it protected the screen while allowing the user to adjust the viewing angle. Yet after he started to perfect the details, when Moggridge flipped open the first working prototype, he was shocked by how little his work seemed to matter. The software was simply a mess, confusing, impossible to use, impossible to explain. Moggridge realized that the software wasn't a thing separate from the laptop. It was all the same experience, one big web of interactions. At their meeting, Fulton Suri showed Moggridge slides of her work, pictures of people reenacting the accidents that befell them, recommendations she had made about motorcycle lights and power tools and train ticket turnstiles. Moggridge, in turn, showed her the diagrams he was using. Dreyfus's compendium of drawings of Joe and Josephine. He was using a lot of drawings from Dreyfus to design computers, Fulton Surrey told me, as we chatted in IDEO's sprawling, light-filled offices in San Francisco. But for me, these were failings, because all of those drawings about posture and use assumed things about people's behavior. I was intrigued with what's really going on in the world, where people don't sit like that where they cross their legs and put their feet up. That came up from seeing firsthand the discrepancy between how people were supposed to use things and how they actually used them. At the end, Moggridge asked, So, what would you like to happen now? Fulton Suri, flabbergasted, blurted out, I'd like you to offer me a job. So Moggridge did. He eventually linked up with an engineer he often worked with, David Kelly, and another designer, Mike Nuttall. By 1991, the three joined their small companies, naming the new one IDEO. By then, the personal computer had arrived in Silicon Valley, killing the mainframe computer and creating new niches to be filled. Apple was the biggest, most important client to the design studios that would go on to remake the profession. In 1980, David Kelly and his colleagues at the Proto-IDEO worked on Apple's first mouse. Frog Design, which soon after opened its first office in Northern California, led the effort to design cases for Apple's computers in the 1980s, including the Snow White design language that would define its products for a decade. Smart Design, based in New York, played a role as well. But even beyond that traditional industrial design work, 
were other, thornier problems for a new kind of client. The struggle was to not just imagine what was right now, says Tim Brown, now the CEO of IDEO and one of the first designers that Moggridge hired, but imagining what was right in the future. In decades past, Henry Dreyfus and his peers had ridden a manufacturing wave that flooded homes across the world in new products. Now IDEO and a new breed of design studio rode atop a silicon revolution, putting screens and gadgets in places they'd never been before. Sometimes, that was in our own homes, with VCRs and personal computers. More often, it was in the unseen places of commercial progress, such as call centers and warehouses and offices. Software, which transformed dumb objects into objects that were always changing, had presented new problems. We were working on making complex products easy to use, says Brown. And if we were doing simple products, it was in the context of the future. Those products had a memory of their own, about what the user had done, and about what they had been before. Granted, just a few seconds before, usually. That was when products shifted from being products to being a narrative. They weren't just a piece of sculpture, and we realized you just had to get into people's lives. But how? In the 1990s, Alan Cooper, an architecture student turned computer programmer, created the concept of a persona, an idealized user composited from interviews. A persona, and the needs and everyday life it represented, could be literally pinned up on the wall so that designers might be able to place themselves in the mindset of the people they were trying to help. The idea wasn't so dissimilar to that of Joe and Josephine, whose measurements were meant to stand for a multitude. When Malgridge first hired Fulton Surrey, he was working on a project for Xerox and had already written a storyboard and a persona, a character named Stella, who was already using an imaginary gadget of the future. He said, is this something you might do? Says Fulton Suri. She balked. I said, I'd rather see what people already did. Fulton Suri didn't think you found the future in your head based upon a construct you'd pasted to a wall. You found it in what was already around you, in the gaps of the world as it already was. She remembered her study days knocking on doors and talking to people who had been maimed. The reason behind all those awful lawnmower and chainsaw accidents was that the departments that made the machines were viewed as being different from the design department. In the end, different always meant separate, and separate meant there were tensions about who won and lost. I didn't want to be in a group that identified itself as different from designers, says Fulton Suri. I said, if we're successful, we can hire more people, but I never want there to be a department. Instead, she proposed that she teach everyone in the office to think as she did. Fulton Suri noticed that designers of the previous generation didn't much like getting out. Art school itself had encouraged that by selecting for certain shy, creative types who relished sitting at their workbenches making beautiful things. The idea of observing people in the wild and wading through the details of their everyday lives was anathema. Fulton Surrey's special genius lay in noticing, in the way a poet might, seeing how a cast-off detail might reveal meaning, sometimes even a life. The project that eventually became her book, Thoughtless Acts, began when Fulton Surrey saw two boys in an English housing project who had boosted themselves up and over the top of a boiler room doorway, arms and legs dangling on either side. In a dark and dimly lit basement hall, they'd made a swing from the only thing that actually moved and made noise in the massive labyrinth of concrete. Maybe the boys needed a playground, or maybe they needed a new kind of apartment complex altogether, one that could be remade around them as they grew up. It was a need, unmet, but which had found an outlet nonetheless. You just had to be sensitive enough to see it. Fulton Suri started collecting more snapshots like these, of people making their presence felt in the world around them. The spines of a house cactus used as a notice board, 
a wine cork perfectly fitted as an impromptu doorstop. The point was that every one of those tiny fixes pointed to a problem that had gone overlooked, to a mismatch between the things people needed, the world they lived in, and the way they behaved. Tim Brown recalls the moment that this lesson clicked. Fulton Suri had taken the team out, on a project for a kitchen appliance maker, to understand what needs people might have. They interviewed someone who talked at length about all the tools she used to cook her meals. Yet when she opened her cupboards, there was almost no fresh food at all. It was all prepackaged and ready to eat. There was something movingly human in this strange slippage between how people described their lives and how they actually lived. The stories people lived weren't the stories they told themselves. They weren't lying, Brown said, but their mental models of what they were doing were different. That's the trick about user-centered design, the explicit need versus the latent need. People will usually tell you what they want, but not what they need. The entire process of design thinking was meant to avoid producing the equivalent of Homer's perfect car, haphazard and unloved, but nonetheless exactly what someone had asked for. The most important problems to solve were those that weren't being expressed. The most important questions to ask were those that people never thought to ask themselves. In addition to creating a culture in which the entire staff became students of human behavior, there were two more ingredients in IDEO's way of working. Putting prototypes, no matter how primitive, in front of users as quickly as possible, and the idea that the design process didn't lie with any one designer. Both tenets sprang from the environment that had nourished the young company. Helped by the self-organizing hacker ethos that had spawned Silicon Valley, both Mogridge and Kelly assumed that their office would be radically egalitarian and non-hierarchical. He was already working like that with David Kelly. People were just team members, and I loved that, said Fulton Surrey. There was already something in the culture that blurred the boundaries. By the time Kelly had studied under Bob McKim at Stanford in 1977, a DIY entrepreneurialism reigned. The student desks were arranged cheek by jowl, and students couldn't help knowing what everyone else was working on. Kelly replicated that design at IDEO with an open plan. Everyone knew everyone else's problems, and suggestions flowed freely. Mogridge even made a point of making all salaries roughly equal and telling everyone that. Even he didn't make much more than anyone else. Kelly also brought an ethos that he'd picked up from McKim. Failure was good. When he worked in Dreyfus's offices, McKim never could build his own prototypes. At Stanford, he preached the opposite. To create a design that worked, you had to build it, watch it fail while people tried to use it, fix it, then watch it fail again until you finally had something. Designing wasn't something you did on paper. Mogridge was already a habitual tinkerer and prototype maker. So was Fulton Surrey. Back in London, doing work for the City Transit Authority, she had created full-size cardboard replicas of subway turnstiles to see how people moved through them. Prototyping with whatever was at hand, from mere sheets of paper to more developed design models farther down the line, became a way of integrating user feedback into every step of the process. Clients were initially baffled by the process that IDEO had created. In the early days, people would say, let's just skip to the design. But Kelly, Mogridge, and Fulton Surrey carried out their new way of working anyway. They hit it, revealing all that they had done only at the end, so that it came as a surprise, albeit one loaded with a subtle implication. This is the way this has to be, because we haven't just guessed. The best marker of how much the world has changed is that the assumptions behind IDEO's way of working are now standard practice. Today, Fulton Surrey's insistence on rooting innovation in the nuance of individual experience has become the maxim that if you design for everyone, you design for no one. Kelly went on to expand upon the design curriculum at Stanford. And by 2004, 
co-founded the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, the so-called D-School, with a curriculum based on IDEO's methodologies. Elsewhere, in the years since, the working process in almost every digital design agency in the world, inside every major technology company, and even inside countless businesses aiming to be more innovative, presumes small teams of people working collaboratively, without hierarchy, and discovery periods meant to uncover unmet needs. All these processes are subsumed in a larger, ubiquitous framework. Observe, prototype, test, and repeat. That equates observation with creation. Today, you can find IDEO's influence in places as varied as the Gates Foundation, which has made human-centered design into a pillar of its efforts to foster innovation in the developing world, to the famed Mayo Clinic, which for years had an entire floor set up in which designers worked alongside doctors, so that they could immerse themselves in a clinic's rhythms and quickly test new ways of offering service. Ford, whose CEO boasted of his plans to remake the behemoth into an experience-driven, user-centered company to better compete in an era of driverless cars, and even Finland, whose radical experiment in offering a universal income was born in a government-funded design lab meant to reinvent public services. For the coming generation of would-be business titans, design-thinking methods are now taught not just at Stanford, but in many of the world's most prestigious business schools, all hoping to emulate the university's promise to teach the alchemy of invention. To be sure, the seeds of design thinking sprouted in many places at once, including Britain, Germany, and Scandinavia. But IDEO benefited from timing and place. Seated in Silicon Valley, piggybacking off the high-technology boom that made Northern California synonymous with innovation, the company was able to spread its influence because of projects that themselves were influential. The company has sold untold millions of dollars worth of work, using the story of how David Kelly helped design the first Apple mouse. But that influence spread only because IDEO created the vocabulary that others could use to sell the idea that design wasn't just prettiness. Rather, it was a process of industrialized empathy, one that could be marketed, explained, circulated, repeated, and then spread. Steve Jobs famously said that it's not the consumer's job to figure out what he or she wants. An echo of both Henry Ford's likely apocryphal quote, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, and IDEO's attempts to separate wants and needs. But Jobs didn't place much faith in process he placed it in his own intuitions and judgments. As a result, his quote has been seized by countless entrepreneurs, happy to be told that their instincts are all that matter. And there are indeed countless examples of people inventing remarkable things simply by following the voice of their own experience. In 2013, Reedy Tariel began a fellowship at Harvard Business School, that culminated in her trying to invent a new way for women to monitor their own fertility at home. To do that, she realized, she'd need large amounts of blood. There are any number of companies trying to find a way to collect blood that doesn't rely on needles, from laser beams to tiny vacuums. But as a woman, Tariel knew something else. As she told the New York Times, I was thinking about women and blood. When you put those words together, it becomes obvious. We have an opportunity every single month to collect blood from women without needles. There's lots of information there, but right now it's all going in the trash. Tariel soon patented an idea that's been dubbed the tampon of the future, a method for capturing menstrual flow and using those samples to monitor for everything from cancer to endometriosis. As the author Pagan Kennedy asked, why did Ms. Tariel see a possibility that had eluded so many engineers before her? You might say she has an unfair advantage, her gender. Because she lives in a female body, she had experiences that just wouldn't be available to her male colleagues. She doesn't have to imagine using her device because she herself has been able to beta test it. Eric von Hippel, an economist at MIT, 
has spent a career finding stories like that of Tariel, and they've led him to conclude that the people who lived inside an experience were the best suited to improve it. Inventions tend to spring from those who see themselves as the users, from Californians who invented skateboards to surf the streets, to the surgeons who built the first heart and lung machines to sustain their patients through arduous surgeries. They're motivated by their own experience. No doubt this is true. But empathy, next to language and opposable thumbs, may be the most powerful tool that evolution has given us. It allows us not to be bound by personal experience. It allows us not to be limited by our stories. Our economy is built on that idea, that an entire company can be mobilized to a cause that started before its employees arrived. So even if a disproportionate number of inventions begin with someone's personal sense of a problem, most inventions aren't perfected by their creator, but rather by other people who finally understood a problem after someone else inspired them. Design thinking and human-centered design arrived to fill a gap between companies pressed to create new things and people with needs but without the wherewithal to bet their time and money on creating something new. What user-centered design did was to build a sensing process that gave companies a way to mimic that of the inventor. The gospel of innovation and the imperative to innovate or be washed away by the rising tide of competition rings hollow unless you have some mechanism for finding new ideas. The beauty of the design process as articulated at the dawn of the computer age was that we could all innovate, if only we knew how to empathize. Industrial empathy arose precisely when a new wave of technology arrived that few people understood and that almost no one had ever bought for themselves. But when empathy becomes an imperative, then the question becomes, with whom should you empathize? Is the average user idealized in a template, like Joe and Josephine? Or is there something to be found in the lives of people at the edges, whose very difference might allow them to sense something that the rest of us cannot?